Hello, and welcome to episode two of Stockton to Malone. My name is Micah Utrecht. And I'm R.L. Stevens. Been a couple weeks since we dropped the first episode, the interview with uh, Judy Whitner. Gotten feedback, but I feel like a lot of it was just about the name. I don't know, they don't like the name. They think it's they think it's dumb. They they don't they they're like it's nonsensical. It doesn't make any sense why you'd call it Stockton to Malone. Look, look. The hottest podcast on the left is called Chopper Trap House and Donald Trump is president. Case closed. We good. <laughs> Anything is possible. Anything is possible. Any weird shit you want to do <laughs> yeah. is possible. The left is wide open right now. Yeah. I was feeling the throwback '90s NBA vibe. Like that's you've also fully embraced it. You're like, we gotta get jerseys. We gotta get whatever. <laughs> yeah. No, okay. Listen, listen. Hear me out. I want us to get throwback Stockton and Malone jerseys from the like the Utah Jazz jerseys. Yeah, for, yeah folks, you understand who weren't you know huge basketball fans in the '90s. The Stockton, right. John Stockton, uh, was the uh, the assist man. I think the all time leader in assists in the NBA. I right? think so. Yeah. Yeah, and Carl Malone was was second all time leading yeah. scorer. Also the, a Republican. Yeah. <laughs> he was known as the mailman, yeah. <laughs> and he drove Harleys, and he had like this really awful mustache. Yeah. And also, uh, Stockton was a white dude who dished the assist to <laughs> Malone, the black dude. When Stockton to Malone, right? I want to get jerseys, throwback jerseys, right? And then we wear them backwards because my cousin was in crisscross. And but your cousin was in crisscross? Hell yeah, man! What? R.I.P. Uh, he died. A drug overdose. But he was in crisscross. He was in crisscross. I don't remember whether he was the Mac Daddy or the Daddy Mac. <laughs> I can't remember that detail because I've never met him, but whatever. You just dropped that like in the middle of this podcast. I have no <laughs> yeah. idea. <laughs> yes, basically. Holy shit. Cousin okay. was in crisscross. So we're wearing the jerseys backwards, all right? Then I'm, I'm thinking, because this is the photo shoot that I'm planning out. <laughs> uh, so we're wearing the jerseys backwards, and I'm thinking, fog machine. As long as I've known you, you've been trying to work ways. You try to work a fog machine into different social events or. I threw a Puff Daddy themed party, and I was. You were talking about that before you moved to Chicago. That's true. This is the main thing you wanted to accomplish in Chicago. I did. Uh, there was a puffy party that happened at the crib. I had a projector that had Puff Daddy videos on a continuous loop all night. It was the greatest night. Ever. I had applesauce at the party because Puff Daddy eats applesauce with every meal. So, you know. A couple weeks ago, you were on a panel uh, in New York at the Young Democratic Socialist Conference, right? That's true. We are not the first leftist podcast to uh, discuss this panel, unfortunately. Chapo actually beat us to this. But you were on the panel. And uh, what were you talking about on the panel? Well, first of all, it's the only panel in the history of panels in which a panelist uh, went from talking on the stage to twerking at the after party. Uh, so I'm pretty sure I, that was the first. Black first for uh, Black History Month. Anyway. What did you talk about? What did I talk panel? about pre-twerk? Um, well, if the panel was about cultural appropriation and privilege. Uh, Liza Featherstone was on it. And Shuja Hyder. And the panel was moderated by Amber Frost. Yeah. And so Liza and Shuja talked about uh, talked about the issues as far as like people getting fired for um, being ignorant as fuck on the internet. That was one topic. 
uh, also just like what Richard Spencer and the alt right were and how they use these terms for um, for right wing purposes. The, the idea of uh, of identitarian stuff, yeah, like identity and, politics for white and, people is yeah, what Richard exactly. Spencer says. Yep, right? exactly. So I had been you know looking at this stuff for a few years, and <clears throat> so what I wanted my contribution to be was uh, a, some more narrative, personal narrative, as well as uh, some practical tools that you could use to get past that form of thinking and actually do organizing work so the personal narrative <laughs> your boy went off <laughs> shocking shocking <laughs> i i think the first like 10 minutes were just it was just like i was like i think i said the word trash 50 times in the first <laughs> 10 minutes i was like tim weiss trash <laughs> colin powell trash bell hooks well i didn't say bell hooks is trash then I was ta- I I talked about the OJ trial. I talked about Rich Chiga. Like, in fact, the my opening remarks were uh, me rapping Rich Chiga. And for those who don't know, Rich Chiga is uh, this Asian seventeen-year-old kid who lives in Indonesia who learned how to speak English by watching rap videos on YouTube. And then he released the hottest track of 2016 called Dat Stick, um, with the money sign rather than the S. And uh, he rapped about killing cops while wearing a fanny pack. This shit was ill. And you also talked about how great cultural appropriation and... Yeah, of course. I mean, because I was saying... And I I talked about my dad, actually, because I come from multiple generations of preachers. We have that in common. Preachers, yeah, that's kids. true. PKs in the house. <laughs> so I was talking about how uh, I would imagine that like Jesus to you is very different than Jesus in my house, quite possibly. And I was saying one of the reasons is because of this like appropriation around uh, uh, how like people like my dad and Reverend Wright and the like, they literally came up with a of theology that said that God was black. And so they were taking what was presented to them historically as a white God and saying, no, God is a God of the oppressed. God is black. And so Jesus was black. And that was the animating force for their social activism. Like um, my dad got arrested, shutting down a Frank Sinatra concert because (laughs) Frank Sinatra was performing in South Africa during the um, apartheid, anti-apartheid struggle. Like this, the reason why he was doing that is because God is God of the oppressed, God is black, like mm. all of these types of concepts, which you can say is appropriation of what, because it's different than what was presented to them. Thank and God he was appropriating that <laughs> Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. So there are no, basically I said, to the, I said to them, there are no pure products. There's no jazz. What is that? You know, that's, we understand that to be a black art form, but where does it really come from? You know, it comes from this mixture of things, this appropriation, and that's not bad. So the problem is exploitation. The problem is that black people lived in a segregated society when jazz was created and could not gener- could not own their labor. And so they were able, they were a captive audience in which everything they ever created was stolen and, and, be, and used by people who... Uh, could could make a lot of money off of it, and if that if those people happen to be black, that wouldn't change it. You know, that still wouldn't change the fact that like you can actually 
because because part of what the people's response to appropriation is is kind of this like intellectual property or like cultural ownership and who is positioned to actually own the culture that's going to be this emergent bourgeoisie who it happens to be the same color as you but this is what this is what uh black bourgeoisie people say i'm a snitch on the on the click real quick um what black bourgeoisie say is hmm, they're my color but not my kind Okay, so that is the kind of attitude that exists out here. That's what you feed into when you have these essentializing discourses that um, that don't take into account that this class thing is dynamic, it's in motion. And so uh, you got to account for that in the struggle. All right, so I had, a, I had a list of references. Tim Weiss, trash. Colin Powell, trash. Bell Hooks, uh. I went in all the way, and uh, it was it was wild. So this was like your Kendrick Lamar control. It was my Kendrick control verse. <laughs> you just I went, went in all on the way, all the way in on everybody. The funniest, the funniest thing though, because like I said, I was saying that it was a personal narrative, right? So when I really got to the substance of what I was talking about, I was saying like, uh, that that the way I used to think, you know, years, because I was saying like privilege is useful in some ways because it opened up space for people to listen to me yeah uh to and to listen to other non-white non-male whatever types of people that's that is a reality because i was recounting how i first became politically aware during the bush years you know so but then i didn't just say like i was a genius that was denied my rightful you know stage that's not what i was trying to say because i kept real with them like i was like look this is what i was thinking back during the bush years and during the Bush years, my attitude was, whatever white people say, I say the opposite. So, <laughs> and even before the Bush years, going, and, I, and I gave the example of like how it was hit or miss. So I was like, all right, Bush years, when they came out and said Iraq, they got what, WMDs? I ain't know nothing about no Iraq. I know nothing about no WMDs. But I was like, white folk and Colin Powell's dumbass. <laughs> saying say, this. Colin Powell. Hey, that's what I said on the panel. I was like, Colin Powell's dumbass is out here talking for the white folk and out here fucked up. He should have known. He should have known. White Carrying folk. water for the white man. <laughs> yeah, man. Why are you going to do that? He should have known. You know, if he'd have been down with the program, he'd have known. And white folk talking about this, you just say the opposite. Nah, they ain't got no WMDs. He'd have been straight. But see, it's kind of hit or miss, though, because during the OJ trial, that was the first year I moved to the suburbs. So I was telling them, I was, it was mostly like college age, and there were a number of high schoolers, so. Who like, weren't even born when the OJ trial Yeah, when the OJ shit happened. I was like eight. So I get, to, I get to school, and the kids are like, OJ did it. And I was like, uh-uh. White folks say he did it? Not guilty. But then I was like, you know what? It's been 22 years, like. OJ did it. <laughs> we can admit it now. You gave them permission. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you talked about the issue of privilege politics a lot, right? Like, I, I think that, I don't know, it's a little complex. I mean, on the one hand, there's a lot of wacky stuff that goes on with this privilege stuff. On the other hand, like you said, a lot of this discourse has made people into better people. I mean, like, I feel like we would still be dealing with, like, you know, I mean, remember that famous Black Panthers quote about like what I forget who it was in the Black Panthers. Stoke. They said, "Was it Stoker who said that uh, you women's know, places to yeah. lay prone?" Yeah, exactly. What, <laughs> yeah, what is the wild. proper position of women in the movement, and it's prone? Oh no, 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 no. Let's go even deeper because I was quoting that right um, a couple years ago when I was doing the Occupy thing. I was saying like, you know, we got to deal with 
with this, these types of attitudes, right? So this they woman, the privilege, and well, no, like, well, even amongst black people, I was oh, like, I see, we, yeah. ha- there are things that we, positions that we've had historically that have been garbage, and I gave that as an example, right? And so this old old head woman, um, who positioned herself as like a veteran of the struggle and stuff, she she sought to correct me, right? So she corrected me by saying, "No, no, no. He uh, he wasn't saying that. Um, he, he, you got it wrong. He meant that was for the white women." And I was like, "What? That doesn't make it better like that." Okay. Uh, so yeah, uh, that is apparently the the true history of the women should lay prone uh, remark. But I'm just I guess saying that. If it hadn't been for a lot of that discourse, it was sort of a blunt instrument, right? Like, people went way too far with it. They took it in these basically apolitical or almost anti-political directions. But, like, it is... I mean, that's why people, this... it's, be, it's better for people to go too far in that direction and then not be assholes rather than just, like, reject that stuff outright and then and be, you know, be the typical, like, white dude, like, talking over women and, I don't know. yeah. I mean, both are have are counter revolutionary. So, and then there's Tim Weiss, <laughs> who I definitely went in on. You know, Tim Weiss was actually really <laughs> important to me in my like political development. Like, I remember reading White Like Me. I must have been like 17 years old, and uh, it. But it, uh, in hindsight, you know, it was the first time I had I had thought about a lot of these these issues of race and stuff. But in hindsight, it took me down some really weird, <laughs> weird directions. Give man. me an example. Well, so like I had, I he, he talks in that book, one of the things I remember him talking about is uh, how he was in a debate team uh, when he was in high school, and I think in college too. And he has this whole thing about like joining the debate team was just soaked in white privilege. Uh, this is, you know, people like me I c- couldn't have been on the debate team if it wasn't for my white privilege, which doesn't even fully make bruh, sense. Bruh, d- did that book come out before Great Debaters? Because <laughs> my brother should have got a, a copy of the Great Let's send him a copy of Great Debaters. You know, he, he missed out on that. It might have been pre-Great Debaters. But, so, but he tells the story about how only white, you have to have white privilege to be in the debate team or whatever. And I remember meeting somebody uh, at this retreat center I used to work at and uh, she was talking about, she was just telling her, like, you know, life story generally to me about how she was in the debate team in, in high school or whatever. And I was like, oh, well, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've read that uh, you know, debate team, you have to have quite a bit of uh, white privilege to be on the debate team. And she stared at me like I was like, like I was a monster. Like, what? She, I'm, she's just telling me about her life. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, you just, everything you do is, you know, soaked in white privilege. Ah, you're a monster. And, and uh, that really shut down the conversation rather than leading to a more fruitful, like, political discussion. Yeah. So... Dude's going wild lately, though. Dude just says the craziest <laughs> stuff. Dude is like, I don't care if you are dying of black lung in the bottom of a coal mine <laughs> yeah. if you are a white person. Like, you deserve it. Yeah. Like, I'm like, so why does he get the platform? Because I remember that discourse. That's also what I was talking about on the panel. I was like, here's where it was beneficial... But as you can see, with my say the opposite of white folks stuff, there's clearly some development that I needed to experience too. And so um, that discourse around privilege and the like wasn't helping me do that actually. And what um, really broke that open, and this is what I talked about on the panel, I was like, all right, all that do the opposite of white folks stuff went out the window when Obama got elected, you know? I was in Bolivia when that happened. 
and Obama got elected, and now you had a black person possessing like major power, uh, systemic power, able to oppress people the world over. And so my whole say the opposite of the white folks, you know, mentality could not cope with uh, the Wait, black so president. So did you like say the exact same thing as Obama? Like, what was your line? Man, dog, I was struggling. First of all, I thought Obama was, of course, trash. But <laughs> I always thought that. I said this on the panel too. I was like, I always thought Obama was garbage. Just for the record, there are show. I used to have a radio show in college. There are tapes. I got receipts that I never drank the Obama Kool-Aid. But the problem was I feel a cultural affinity for obesity. My man took the bowling alley out the White House and put in a basketball court. Wait, that is that shit true? is crazy. I don't even know if it's true. I heard it. That's the, that's how deeply invested I am in in this shit. Richard Nixon loved that bowling alley. That's good. Obesity came through with the with the Jordans on. It was hooping. That was Oh, that was so tight. Even though at the time I was like, man, this mother, he's out here doing stuff like uh, with the Yes, We Can speech. This is when I knew I hated Obama. Yes, We Can speech comes out. And this man equated the pioneers on the frontier with the civil rights leaders. And I was like, what kind of nonsense is this? And then because my dad went to school with, uh, he got his doctorate with Jeremiah Wright. So when that whole thing went down, we were glued to the TV, right? So when the race speech happened from Philly, um, and Obama was like, his racist grandma was the same as Reverend Wright. My family was like, no, my dad, who barely knew how to use the internet, right? This man was in the comment threads of CNN.com <laughs> at like 12.30 in the morning. Like, this man was not going to sleep because he was fighting these battles, man. This, this was real, okay? So, like, Obama, when that happened, like, my cultural affinity was in competition with my political beliefs and what, and what I knew to be true politically. And that created the rupture that forced me to have to, A, deal with the ways in which I contribute to empire and the ways that I that aren't captured in privileged discourse and um, really forced me to have to like adapt. And so, you know, that was, uh, that was, that was a difficult transition. And like, really this, I, I, I also mentioned how like privilege discourse was not speaking to people like, like me, for example, because we could get away with so much nonsense because like what, <laughs> like uh, I also mentioned bell hooks, you know, so part of the reason why I say it, said on the panel that I just don't like a lot of the stuff uh, she says is because I was reading The Killing Rage, right? Yeah, I've read Killing Rage. Bruh, yeah, you've read a bunch of books, I used to be right? really into Bell Hooks. <laughs> of course. <laughs> she was important to my, you know, like Tim Wise, important on the, on the journey, man. So I read like a dozen of her books. Oh, no snap. Joke. So, okay, then you explain the beginning of Killing Rage. Well, man. the beginning, it starts with the phrase, I haven't read it in like over a decade, but... It starts with a phrase that's like, I'm on an airplane and I'm about to murder the white man sitting next to me or something like that. Yeah. And you're like, oh shit, like, what what happened? Like, did he call her, you know, the N-word? Did, like, what was this grave offense that took place on the airplane? And then you read on and it turns out that the story is about, something about, like, she was supposed to be sitting in first class, but... Now she's not. Or something like something that. Something like that. It, was, it definitely had to do with first class. Yeah. Uh, and CD. she was not there and she should have been there. 
And she and that's the the title of the book. That's the killing rage. Right. The, and I was like, when I I I closed the book. I was like, I can't read this. What? There's something about it when she's like scribbling on notepads, like large enough for the people around her to oh, see. Yeah, like, it's. I am going to the kill most, this man. Yeah, it's so wild. Like and like. So wait, what did you think when you first read that? I was like, this is ridiculous. Like this is. But but at that stage, I didn't read that until I think 2013 or so, and at that stage, I had already gone through the Obama thing, and and I was trying to deal with my own stuff, you know, of having grown up around that kind of thinking, where like you feel where where you have uh, a certain degree of class privilege, but you're still racialized, and so you're denied certain perks, and that becomes the definition of racism for you, right. and like that, and that, and because that. That tends to be the dominant piece of the discourse is the experiences of people who can speak on these platforms and the like. So I was just like, this is nonsense that we take up so much space in the narrative around race. I think she did this interview. It was for like the source or something with uh, Ice Cube. And I remember there was this line in the interview and she was like, do you know what? People still give me shit. Because I bought a BMW. And oh, Cube yeah. is like, oh, what? Are you serious? They're pissed about you getting a BMW? And she's like, can you believe that? Like, can <laughs> yeah. you believe what I got to put up with? Yeah, right? Shit for buying I'm a like, BMW? this is a different... Look, like the class cleavage, cleavages are within, within the race are very serious. And privilege does not touch any of that. Basically, Bell Hooks, what's that boy's name? Something like that boy that uh, tried to sell the pills for a bazillion dollars. You talking the, the, about Martin Shkreli? Yeah, basically that's the type of sucker that that's some sucker shit that, that he, he would do. do. He would have killing rage about not getting <laughs> right. first class. Right. He'd be tweeting about, I can't believe they're giving me shit for having a BMW. <laughs> right. I bought the only Wu Tang album, and people are mad. Why? You know, this is capitalism. Like that's like it's perfectly congruent with that kind of mentality, and so and, and like. The privilege theory just doesn't pick up much of that. I mean, because we give lip service to the idea of class privilege, but like it's not enough to talk about class privilege. Like no. we shouldn't contain the theories within certain like siloed identity positions, but rather class is to be understood as a dynamics in motion and like the the way to describe society, not merely an individual. And so privilege was too individualistic. For like a, wor- a world that I was confronting that like had all these positions and, and black people doing this and, and Latino, La- a Latino, a Latino was head of ICE. Okay. <laughs> like this is, it was, it was wild. The Obama years should have deaded. <laughs> it should have killed all of this nonsense, but it didn't. You know, when I was in college and I was into the Tim Wise and the Bell Hook stuff. Uh, I got it, as I said before, I got into some really weird stuff. And <laughs> I have this kind of naturally really loud, deep, kind of booming voice. I can't really do anything about it. It's kind of hard for me to like actually speak in a way where I'm like not taking up a bunch of space in a, in a room or whatever. And so when I was in college, I like thought about this because, you know, I was always being told like you need to think about the ways that you're taking up too much space as a white man, like social space and, you know, physical space, whatever. So I was like, all right, I got this voice, and this voice, like, this is, the voice is a reflection of my my privilege, like, that's messed up, so I gotta figure out how am I gonna deal with this voice, and so <laughs> I couldn't really, like, bring it down too low, because it's, it's just naturally loud, so in college, I started doing this thing where I would, like, 
talk with like extreme like vocal fry like I would, I would talk like this because you know I didn't want to take up too much space as a white man I just want to you know allow other people of color and women step up and uh, give give them give them the space that they deserve and just step back. So. Did you did you do the thing where you like apologize for like twenty? Oh my minutes, god, all the time. Twenty minutes, all the like, time. Yeah, the I'd be point like, is to not take up space, and this man yeah. over here apologizing for thirty five minutes. I'm sorry, I'm even speaking right now as a white man. I, I know it's probably even my, my place to even say anything. In fact, I should probably not even be here. I probably, I'd be, I should back probably back when home. I used to do the activism, I'd be like, man, the meeting could be half as long. <laughs> Look, my thing is the people who, who like really go in like about this performative element to it, none of that is resonating with the people that we claim to be in solidarity with. Yeah, like, that's if, for sure. Okay, so you're going to go into the vocal fry... <laughs> When you when you when you organize in, yeah, right, trying to like inspire some workers to go on strike. I'm like, I think you guys should, you know, it's it's your time. You have the you have the power. You could do this. Yeah, that's weird. Like you were gonna be like, what is actually that happened to you? Well, yeah, when I was in college, I uh, you know I was all into this like privilege stuff, and then I also got involved in the in the union, uh, unite here, and uh, I was at a two day training when I, I think I was a junior in college and. You know, they were talking about all kinds of inspiring stuff, and it was this multiracial room with people talking about their stories and, like, fighting back against their boss and transforming their lives through union struggle and everything. And so I was really inspired by this, but that was, like, clashing with my, like, privileged thing. I'm like, well, this is great that they're doing this, but I don't have any business, like, being here. And so uh, on on the first night of the training, I remember at dinner, they, they paired me up. Uh, they, they paired everybody up. Like, a, they would pair a student up. Because they're students and workers who are at this training and so they paired me up with a hotel worker and um you know i was talking to her and i was like telling her how how inspired i was how great everything was but i was like but you know i don't know if i have any real business being here i mean like this is like your struggle or whatever like this you know who am i to get involved in this whole thing like i don't i don't have any business like i don't know what your life is like i don't know what your struggle is like blah blah blah. and this is an african-american woman from the south side of chicago who you know pause you did it again what? See, when white people say African-American, it's <laughs> so goofy to me. What do, you, what do you want me to say? Black! <laughs> it's simpler. What is wrong with you? See, he's still under the influence of that stuff, man. Just say what you mean. Uh, okay. Damn. This black woman. Uh, thank you. From the South Side of Chicago. Black people don't even say African-American. No, don't really say that. All right, anyway. Go. Anyway... <laughs> Black woman from the South Side of Chicago. Uh, and I'm like saying this stuff to her about, you know, going into my little privilege speech. And she's looking at me like I'm speaking another language. Like, what? She clearly has like no comprehension of what this bullshit is that I'm saying. And she's, you know, she says like, what? You, this is like a Friday night. Like, you could be out somewhere like getting drunk. Cause it's like, you know, 7 38 p.m. on a Friday night. I was spending my weekend with this union. She was like, you're here. Like, you want to fight alongside us like why would i be mad at that why would i not like welcome you into the struggle that we got going here and i was like oh yeah i guess that's true and i and it was a sort of like saul on the road to damascus moment when i realized like here i was i had thought that i had needed to perform all these acts of penance you know in front of people of color to be for my white privilege or whatever and then i like speak to a real person of color and i say this and they're like what the fuck are you talking about get this nonsense out of here 
They they zeroed in on that throughout the whole weekend. They just like slammed me over and over again. They're like, we found this dude's weakness. We're gonna beat this shit out of him. Like, but real talk though, we're not saying that there's never any problems. Of course, with yeah. People being taking up a whole bunch of space and whatever. That's definitely a reality. Like, the the issue is. The, the reason why that's a problem is because it, it's not good organizing. It's not merely just a moral position in the abstract. So yeah, when you're... That's interesting about uh, talking to actual workers and how that experience was transformative and why it's important for us to, do, for, to anchor the work in, in real relationships and struggles. But I remember I was talking to... I was talking to the, uh, a college student about actually doing, doing the work and this, and the kid was like, I don't, I don't want to be assault because I don't want to colonize. This is a white kid. I don't want to colonize this job. And I was like, what does that even mean? Like, is this kid thinking? I remember thinking in my head, this kid thinks he's fucking Cortez because he's working at, at, at a low wage job. To organize a low wage interracial <laughs> yeah. workforce. Yeah. He's working a low wage job, and that is he's he has a machete and he's, he's just hacking people down. Okay, oh no, don't make my life better. No, don't help me have a platform to build real power for myself. No, that's like really what what people are gonna be like. No, hell nah. So. That so you just, think, you're saying that he just didn't want to do the work. Yeah, like he didn't want to do it. That's fine. <laughs> But, like, people can hide behind these, this, like, colonizing and space and all that stuff when, like, really what's scary is trying to do the work in solidarity with the people in real, like, real uh, ways. And that is hard. Um, You know, that's, that's scary. And so, uh, like, so as, as we're kind of throwing out, like, this privileged discourse, this cultural appropriation, these types of constructs, they're useful in very narrow in very narrow ways, but the way that they've been used, especially over the past, I'd say, you know, 10 years or so, create defeatist kind of tactics where, like, this politics of difference, merely recognizing how we're different from one another, that doesn't necessarily accomplish any political goals or change any political outcomes. Because uh, merely recognizing the differences, like, oh, we have a black president, that's different (laughs) representation. Did that shift anything for Black people as a as a whole? Hell nah. And so I don't. I what what is dumbfounding to me is that we've had very serious examples recently. But even as far if we look at the record over the last forty years or so of this type of politics not working, where merely changing the identity of the power broker doesn't actually shift power for the masses. And so it's not about ignoring things like racist behavior sexist behavior whatever obviously right there should be no you know tolerance for that I mean, we want people to not be but, racist but, or, the, but or the issue sexist. is how you change that yeah exactly and that's what i talked about on the panel is that you do not change that by privilege checking and moralizing people in the abstract but rather you have to and this goes back to uh barbara fields and her construct the concept of uh, ideology and how you shift that or what an ideology is like racism, race itself is an ideology. How, and ideologies are merely ways that people make sense of their everyday lives. 
So the way that you change the way people make sense of their everyday lives is by shifting their everyday lives, shifting their experiences. And the way to do that is you can bring people together around a common project. Struggle, and yeah. And you've got them all together around the thing that is their common interest. And then once you've got them in the room and you've been able to build ties with one another, then you can use that basis to fight things like reactionary, Attitudes, racist, sexist, whatever behaviors. Yeah. And I've seen that in practice. And so in the talk, I, I talked about that in detail. I talked about uh, observing it, and I talked about doing it um, in the context of, of uh, my time in the union. All right, that's it for us. Episode 2, Stocking Balone in the books. Make sure you uh, subscribe to us on iTunes through Jacobin Radio. Rate us and review us. We much appreciated. And tell your friends.